So welcome to Just a GP. This week, we're having the opportunity to interview Mark Morgan, who is a Just a GP who's passionate about quality and also research. And we thought it'd be really nice to hear from him about his sort of personal perspective on what's taken him down the path of, yeah, both the research and the quality. So welcome, Mark, and also welcome, Ash. Um, Unfortunately, Beck can't join us today, so it's just going to be the three of us. So I might start off by maybe getting Mark to introduce himself in in the terms of who who do you see yourself as being, Mark? I see myself as a, as a GP, first of all, even though my main job at the moment is uh, working in Bond University as an educator with just a general practice being a small part of the week. But I think once a GP, always a GP. I, I see myself as um, somebody who's really keen just to, to have all the systems around me working as well as possible so we can do the job I'm trained to do. Thanks, Mark. So I might go straight into the moment of your, the best moment of your week this week. Maybe, Ash, you can break the ice with what's been a really good thing about your week. On Tuesday this week, I got up early and was able to see the sunrise over the beach and then I had two eagles come down and fly around where I was. And then on the way into work that day, I had a double rainbow and it was a complete almost circle, the, the, the first one. And then the second one was quite a faint one, but they were full, you know, the whole rainbow, not just the, the tiny little bit of it. It was pretty cool. Yeah, nature's pretty wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and Mark, how about you? I think that um, my week last week is the highlight for me rather than this week. I was um, scuba diving um, from a boat uh, in Western Australia on Ningaloo Reef. It was just fantastic. No emails, no telephone calls, just nature at its best. Sounds wonderful. For me, I think I'm going to say about what my highlight is about to be. Tomorrow I head off with a team of 38 people to do work in the Philippines. I do this twice a year and uh, it's a really busy lead up to it so I'm always quite relieved when we actually get onto the plane um, because I take 20 medical students with me and a number of dentists and doctors so the organisation is huge but when we get there the rewards of working with the community that I work with in the Philippines is really worth it so that's my highlight about about to come. An anticipated highlight Charlotte you're breaking uh, all the rules. Yeah, I know, but, you know, Mark was allowed to break the rules with with a week past, so, you know, I thought, ah, let's go okay. for it. <laughs> we can, as I've said before, we can really do what we want, yeah. can't we? <laughs> and why not? That's the fun of it. So, Mark, let's move into the, uh, the passions of uh, quality and tell us a little bit about what does quality mean to you and why is it so important to us as GPs? I'm actually really impressed with the GPs that I get to meet. I think they're some of the most highly professional, caring and well-trained people who are careful and really dedicated to what they do. But we're working with flawed systems. Everything seems to get in the way. The computer doesn't do exactly what you want it to do. The communications, the bookings, the, the, the team around you the information you've got at your fingertips, none of that is quite the way it should be. 
So quality means getting all of this right. I think it means being able to do the, show the skills and that dedication and really shine. Um, and, it, and it means that the outcomes are the ones we're after. So people's experience of, of um, receiving care is really good. Um, the clinical outcomes are the best they can be expected to be. Um, the, the care's good value. And more, most importantly, it's all sustainable. So um, affordable for us to keep delivering that care and, and, and take home an income and for the whole system to be sustainable for the future rather than just uh, surviving on a, on a prayer. So for me... Quality is about all of those systems, not especially about how much more we could educate GPs. So just sort of take me on a little journey, Mark. Tell me, what does that actually mean in practice? I mean, we all talk about wanting to do better, but how do we actually do that? And what what things are you doing that might help us get there? I'm involved in a bunch of research projects and I chair the um, quality committee, the uh, RACGP expert committee for quality care. And that's the group that writes the the guidelines like the Red Book. It's the group that uh, provides information um, to the, the board of the college on clinical matters. And it gives us a seat at the table on all sorts of um, national level committees where the GP voice just needs to be heard. The research I'm doing is um, a, a variety of, of projects that really all come under the, the same umbrella of trying to make the systems in general practice work better so that GPs and nurses and others in the practice can do the jobs that they're trained for the, the best way at full scope of practice. I think one of the most exciting um, research projects that I'm involved in at the moment is uh, one that's looking at uh, frailty and multimorbidity. And it's a project that um, involves shared decision-making with these elderly folk with multiple problems um, and planned and proactive care. But the outcomes are the interesting thing. We're not measuring cholesterols and HbA1cs. We're looking at quality of life and uh, experience of care and reducing the burden of care for these people. So uh, I'm really, really pleased to be both doing what's important, but also measuring what's important. It's exciting change from uh, from an, a slavishly following uh, guideline um, targets for disease management. Yeah, it, it is nice isn't it so take me a little into that as to what that again means to us as a gp so your your research is around what the patient is interested in rather than the doctor it's actually around a, a system of care that brings the patient in to spend time with the doctor and nurse um following um a checklist that really nails down to what are the problems for that person at that time in their life that might be fixed by the general practice. Um, It looks at aspects of um, their quality of life, but also how much time people are spending um, on their health and attending appointments and taking pills and looks at ways to uh, de-prescribe and and, um, 
unreferred people, if that's appropriate. So we've um, set up systems where the GPs have access to um, kind of at their fingertip information about how to reduce pills, um, which pills are still really necessary and which ones, um, which targets can be relaxed as people get older. And we've uh, trained nurses and provided uh, a toolkit for nurses to uh, spend the time with um, the elderly patients trying to work out what their day-to-day problems are and how to fix them in a uh, in a way that isn't all about following single disease guidelines or more referrals to more people to fragment care across multitudes of services. And it's been really successful watching uh, how the um, how some of these patients have uh, come in on a handful of medicines and dozens of referrals and a really confused picture of what's important. And as the uh, the year runs on, you start to see a pattern emerging where the, the, the patients are understand what, what the key goals are for their treatment and are on a much simpler medical intervention to achieve those while starting to, to make um, plans, um, including deciding important things about their own future, what's most important. And if living the longest is not the most important, well, then we focus on something else that is more important for that individual. So in terms of, so what I'm hearing is that it's a project that is really about what I call, and we've talked about before, patient activation. Um, And if you so you and you've brought in a system of trying to make sure that you know you aligning what it is the patient actually really wants and then giving them sort of getting the whole team involved in actually getting them activated in doing their care which is sort of different from the health literacy thing it's more about actually giving them um, a clinical path that they actually want to do and understand the importance of it oh, look, that's exactly right it's about activation but it's also about almost giving permission for gp and the patient together to um sell their own course in line with um the evidence that's specific to elderly and with multi morbid uh, multi multiple medical conditions what we were seeing before is that uh, each patient was um divided into a number of medical conditions and each condition was um, managed according to a set of guidelines or according to a specialist outpatient clinic and, and not quite enough um, opportunity to to pick and choose the important things and, and drop some of the less important things. So Mark, I'm really interested in the, in, if you could help me clarifying the roles in that pro, in your project because it sounds like it's very much about a team-based approach so that might not suit all practices or is it one where you you're very much about the practice nurse and the GP uh, you know so and how much is it the practice nurse versus the GP and how does that work in our current financial model of care? Well, this project really needs both the nurse and the GP working closely together and um, Using care planning and um, chronic disease management um, patient rebates, we can actually afford to spend a bit of extra time with the patients 
uh, and to afford a practice nurse to spend a bit of time information gathering and uh, helping to coordinate some of the um, outputs from this, some of the um, activities that the patients might undertake. But I think decisions about de-prescribing and working out which guidelines to follow and which um, guidelines can actually be uh, um, adjusted for the age and the multimorbidity, I think that requires the breadth and depth of knowledge of GPs. And I think it's a real skill that in the um, in our health system, GPs are perhaps the, the only people that can do that. Um, maybe palliative, um, palliative care physicians at the end of life and maybe geriatricians, but uh, the numbers of GPs um, mean that at scale, it's really general practice that has to, has to take this role. Um, and if we don't, our patients end up on hundreds of medicines and spending half their life um, looking after their health. And some of that's unnecessary and wasteful and harmful. So I think I'm hearing you say that part of this sort of aspect of the quality care is empowering the GPs to be that person, to cut back and to make those decisions without the need to involve more and more people um, and specialists. Yep, exactly right. But to do that, GPs need to have information at their fingertips. They need a good sense of uh, what uh, the patient's priorities are and they need some information about um which medicines are essential for keeping, you know, shoring people up and keeping them alive and which medicines are less essential for that. And I think that's where um, this has been exciting because once we start the process of de-prescribing with some low-hanging fruit, the GPs working in this project really got a, a taste for it and started to think, well, you know, this is a really important role that, that my skill set and my knowledge can, can um, shine in. So I, I saw the GPs taking a real interest in, uh, in reducing medicines rather than increasing medicines. So again, I'm sort of hearing that having some point of care decision tools with easy to access evidence-based guidelines that are res- actually relevant to general practice is where we're needing to facilitate the upskilling of everybody. Look, I agree that um, point of care guidelines are going to be the way of the future. I think um, the guidelines that my committee currently uh, produces um, allow some searching, but we haven't really got them to the point where you can just put a question in and pull up an answer. Uh, And I'd like to move in that direction um, with, with guidelines as we revise them, which is a continuous process. But I think uh, the information we can, now that we store most of our medical information comes in an electronic format, there are some really clever ways of of using that and analysing it um, in in really quick order and providing prompts that can can help decision-making at the point when decisions are made. So so one of my other really exciting projects is one in uh, collaboration with the Gold Coast PHN. And that's a, a system that, uh, that analyzes the medical record and then provides really clever reports back just at the point you're about to prescribe. Um, 
almost anything you could imagine doing if you had all the time in the world to, to read an electronic medical record from front to back and uh, look at all the pathology results in there and, and, and all the, the background information and then apply the best practice guidelines as they currently are. This system can, can do that in real time in 0.2 of a second and provide a little prompt that pops up on the screen with that information. It's really clever and it's so much nicer to, to use than the, um, the rather dumb medication um, alerts that uh, the inbuilt software currently throw up at you. So is this a bit of AI being thrown at us through the, um, the research? Uh, it's pretty close to AI at the moment. I think it's, um, it learns in a manual way from the feedback from the system rather than in an automated way. So you wouldn't call it full artificial intelligence just yet, but it could move in that direction. But the key thing is it's only providing and curated information um, in a you know, glance at and understand it in a, in a, in a second or two in order to help a decision. I don't think we should get to a point where AI starts to make those decisions. It's just to, to pull information and then present it in the best possible way at the time when you need it. Uh, we're really close to doing that for a lot of the, um, the medical decisions. Yeah, well, it seems to me that that's what seems to be coming out, that AI is actually just a tool. We should never be looking at it being the provision because there's too much other stuff that we need to take into account. You know. Um, and I'm sure Ash would agree with me here that, you know, we're not ruling out the role of the GP. We're just improving the quality of care we can give by making sure that we have all of that sort of evidence-based stuff at our hand as we talk to our patients and provide that care. Yeah, I've heard of um, some systems where it's more about enhancing and reducing the amount of of information that the GP needs to hold in their head and enhancing that idea of of the checklist and, and risk um, and reduction of risk in a consult by using AI um, with within the model of care that we deliver, you know, and not, not every consultation will need that sort of approach, as you both would know, but there are some ways in which it, it could be useful in terms of um, potentially acute care or, or presentations or even some um, just providing GPs with those those tools and, and considerations in in the same way that our practice software highlights interactions. And it, when you see it from that perspective, it's more exciting rather than fearful and it could enhance our job rather than um, make it worse because I really feel that there's so much information that we hold in our little heads and, and try and keep on top of, and, and this could potentially be something that's really useful. I mean, I, I certainly agree that you, know, you could not replace what GPs do with an artificial system. The amount of time that would have to be put into putting in all the information and, um, would just be enormous to make every single decision. We're far better at integrating uh, decisions in our own heads, but with that information provided in the most succinct and useful way. Uh, can I give you a practical example? Um, if you get a series of results to check of a, of a morning and somebody's kidney function is a little bit on the low side, the system will just pop a little note saying, 
just be aware this person's on digoxin or on metformin at, the, at a current dose that's a bit higher than their kidney function suggests they should be on. So you may know that, but with the system there in the background, it's going to help you um, from um, making a mistake or, or missing that information. Yeah, or doing what we do. And again, I'm sure Ash is with me on this, is that we'll often ignore a particular recommendation because the benefit of what we're doing outweighs the disadvantage. And obviously a guideline doesn't you know, take that into account. And it's those conversations that you have with your patient about, you know, I, I just to let you know that with your, you know, X, Y, and Z, we might not do that, but I think the benefit is that okay with you. Yeah, it helps you to have a more robust clinical decision-making rather than not being aware of your own blind spots. Yeah, so it'd be interesting, Mark, to see uh, the, the sort of the feedback from the GPs when you're doing that. How many GPs are involved in the project? At the moment, we've got um, 14 practices and about to be up into the 30s. Um, and the GPs are um, kind of comfortably using the system um, and choosing to ignore the prompts some of the time. Um, because they've made a decision that, you know, in, in this particular circumstance, it shouldn't apply. But other times they, they're indicating that they're making a change. And one of the clever things is we can um, monitor how often people are making a change or how often uh, an alert is, um, is, is missing the mark and go back and reprogram it to, to put an alert in in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, that whole thing. I mean, at the moment, I, I'm involved in a research project which is identifying gaps for both um, for cardiovascular disease risk management for those patients with existing disease and high risk. And we know there's quite big prescribing gaps, but my argument has always been that the gap looks bigger than, you know, it, that it's not just because we're not doing as a GP, our job. It's that as a GP, a lot of the time we have those conversations with people and they actually don't want to do it. I mean, the number of high-risk cardiovascular disease patients I've got who you talk to them about their risk and they still, it still doesn't actually matter to them enough to want to take other measures. Um, and, you know, we can only do what we can do at the end of the day. It's about the patient. Um, and as long as they're fully informed then they have a right to make the decisions that they want to make. Yeah, and sometimes those decisions get made you know, after several conversations um, and people change their mind. And so long as you continue to have an open dialogue, then people will change their mind in the future. One thing that really worries me about a, um, the shift towards a pay-for-performance um, way of trying to improve care across an Australian setting is you'd lose that ability to um, uh, to have an open and an even conversation because there'd be dollars hanging on that conversation, uh, and I think there's some really big risks of going down that route. And um, I'd much rather look at quality as a way of continuous improvement and provision of information rather than a, a big stick to, uh, to to force people's hand or even a big carrot to um, put dollars into the middle of a conversation uh, with patients about their choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, but I would, I mean, this is a conversation probably we don't have time to do given that we're, we're already at the time we were at with um, this mark. But I, 
I'd be interested in you then saying, because I, I don't like pay for performance either, but I'm also very mindful that we need incentives for GPs to do certain work. And certainly if we're going to change the way in which we do things, we we need sort of ways in which to improve the system and the incentives around doing those changes. And that's 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 a hard sell to anything that isn't around us being able to actually say that we're meeting some targets. Look, you you're right. And um, GPs rule. Um, the GPs that I know, well, are nearly all doing their best, nearly all of the time, out of a sense of professionalism. But there's actually no built-in incentives to uh, to do a good job. The built-in incentive is to do lots of a job, not a not a good job. Um, I think the key thing is if the profession is able to lead the way in what's measured, so we measure what's important to measure, not just what's easy to measure, and so the experience of care and the experience of care delivery are not lost, then we can be in a system where you can um, incentivize continuous improvement rather than trying to reach some arbitrary target. Yeah, I tend to agree in terms of being involved in what's considered an appropriate outcome for the service that you're delivering. One of the services that I work in had some, you know, were given some outcomes which when I looked at them I went, that's not really an outcome, that's just a number. And just because you improve that number doesn't mean that there's any real outcome in it from the patient's perspective in terms of what's changed for them. Um I think GPs have an interesting perspective on the health system in that we have that continuous relationship with a patient over a long period of time. So we get an idea about the patient experience and how important that is and what's valuable to them in their lives and for us to improve their health so that they can go on that holiday that they want to do or they can we help to improve their mental health so that they can have better relationships within their family unit and that actually then ends up being more beneficial for their physical health in the in the long run even though we might have a year's worth of poor physical health while we're sorting out the mental health side of things we can see that and that's not always seen in the rest of the health system in terms of the episodic nature of of specialist services or tertiary services where they do want to see, you know, a, a number change or an, a specific outcome change or a reduction or an increase in certain in certain figures, whereas we see that kind of holistic patient perspective. And so I think I agree with you. It's important that we're involved in helping to design and working with patients, as we've spoken about previously on the podcast, um, about working with patients on what what are, what are meaningful outcomes for them it's a really good call for any primary care information that's gathered to be looked at by gps and patients and not just kind of given away to some external organization to uh, to analyze for their own ends because yeah like you i frequently see people looking at some raw data or raw numbers and go well that wasn't much good, was it? And in fact, what's really important has been missed because the wrong things have been measured or the wrong interpretation has been put on the information. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've both got it. And I think that goes back to what I sort of said earlier about the whole patient, this thing called the patient activation measure because from some of the research I've been seeing, where you really 
make some significant improvements is when you actually have the patient's best interests as the focus and have them understanding that as well so that they actually can interact cooperatively uh, with, you know, with, with whatever you're doing. I mean, it's no point saying to someone, go for a walk every day and then leaving them with that. It's about, you know, why why would you want to go for a walk and what are the ways in which you can do it? What are the barriers? How can I assist you? And what are the things we put in place to actually get you to do it? And then you can actually end up with somebody being able to do it um, versus going out going, oh, that doctor didn't even know why I can't go for a walk every day. Uh, what you've just described is what I spend some of my time teaching the medical students here at Bond University. It's uh, an interesting uh, journey that uh, the medical students are taken on because they, they, they often start with a list of lifestyle interventions that they're going to tell patients to do and that will cure all the problems. Um, and uh, any GP knows that uh, there's a lot more complexity to it than that. Oh, yeah. As I, I often say to people, it's it's the finding the right fish hook, isn't it? You know, it's it's and you, you just need to, you know, for some people that takes a big body of work and others they do it all for themselves and it's easy peasy and they're really rewarding. Um, and But it's what brings the joy to general practice. One of the other things that uh, I've thought of as a positive this week was there an upcoming meeting with the Consumer Health Forum and others about social prescribing because um, that uh, concept of um, prescribing to non-medical services, um, things like park run or um, somebody joining a, a club, that goes on all the time, but in a very piecemeal way from one uh, GP to the next. And I'd love to, to think how can we make that better and then how can we know that we've we're doing it better and then how can we support these groups and organizations if they're going to be part of um, what, what what supports our patients so I think that whole social prescribing move really looking forward to getting my teeth into that um, through upcoming meetings I mean you're absolutely right um, Mark I mean social prescribing is my particular little passion at the moment and I'm working on some uh, projects in the area that I am in, and it's good timing to talk about Park Run because we're, there's there's a bit of a, um, a a movement at the moment to try and get GPs to champion um, their own local park runs and see if that might help um, in, sort of increase the sort of the uptake of programs like that. But um, just just sort of having an awareness. I remember I did a sort of a self audit of how much social prescribing. I was doing within my practice and you know on a it was sort of about 30% of the stuff that I was doing and so we we do it it's just we don't really talk about it and as you say we don't quantify it and sometimes the barriers are that we have no idea about all the things out there that we can actually use as the the enablers to get um, the changes that we need. I bet the GP in the room next door to me has a completely different pattern of social prescribing to my pattern of social prescribing so uh, I'd love to get the best of both worlds and, and understand the whole picture. Mm, and I, I keep hearing about a lot of this if only we were aware of the services and I, I, I guess I see more and more the, the role of a really great 
locally resourced social worker could add to a general practice. Oh yeah, and that gets funded in in um, the PNIP in a whole lot of different sort of ways. It, oh, it's it's a dream I have, but you know, it's a bit like having a pharmacist on site. I want a pharmacist who can help us improve our medication management and do as much de-prescribing as possible. And I want a social worker to uh, help improve the sort of the knowledge and the ability to do the social prescribing. We're all dreaming the same thing, it seems. I think so. Yeah. And a lawyer. Can I tell you that's the other thing? We've just been offered the services of um, of a lawyer to come in and assist us with legal advice for a whole lot of this sort of social prescribing stuff, you know, the whole the issues of the NDIS and the accessing certain things or finding payments or for the, you know, the, the victim of assault. And I'm really looking forward to the what that trial shows and how many patients we can help by having in-house legal advice. As in in-house legal advice to the practice or to the patients? No, to the patients. So we're going to be actually running a, um, a clinic for for patients. So again, we're going to be doing upskilling. So both sort of coming and talking to the doctors about the sorts of things that actually having for, you know, somebody who knows about the legal system and how to access it and what to do and to the to patients so that they understand, you know, that that rather than just putting up with things that, that we might actually have avenues to pursue to find things for them. And as, so I think NDIS is quite a good example of that because there's a number of people who, you know, get denied access to NDIS and or are not getting the services that they actually think are the ones that they want to get and they've been cut back or how they actually can access them. There's a whole, you know, a large number of things just in that alone, let alone all the other things that we do with our, with our patient care. That sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm excited. So at that point, though, I think we're probably at the end of our time. You've taken us on a great journey, um, um, Mark, and I really appreciate that. Um, but I wonder if you can leave us with a clinical gem. Uh, well, I think this is a self-care gem, really. But in uh, this season of um, of coughs and colds and flu-like illnesses, I, I think there's a few things you can do to protect yourself. And I really like the idea of when you're asking somebody to show you their tonsils, you ask them to take a deep breath in rather than a deep breath out. The other thing, in the same token that I, I sometimes put on a, an N95 mask, um, and it's a great way of protecting yourself from illness, uh, but also um, identifying all those lip readers out there. <laughs> oh, I like it. Thanks, Mark. And, yeah, the, I like the breath-in concept. Um, what about you, Ash? I recently realised that the Australian Psychological Society has submitted a white paper in relation to the MBS review. And I just found it really useful to have a bit of a read overview because it gave me an idea about um, or at least an overview about where the psychologists sit in terms of how, what the evidence is for certain treating certain conditions and and what their perspective is on that. And it, it really helped to give me an idea of um, timelines and expectations in, in that group of people as well. That Thanks for that. I think you're absolutely right. And 
just sort of knowing that some of those things are out there is really helpful. Um, well, mine is sort of along the social prescribing one in that uh, loneliness is actually one of the key um, uh, factors to poor health in terms of if we look at frailty and the like. And I've sort of been quite interested in that. And there's this really neat um, project that's been done in southern Sydney at the moment, and it's called the Sutherland Shire Loneliness Project. And it's worth a look at just in terms of some of the things they're doing and ideas around trying to improve um, the patient experience in terms of overcoming loneliness. So if anyone's interested, it's the Sutherland Shire Loneliness Project on YouTube. And so that then brings us to the end. And I'd again like to really thank Mark um, for giving us some of your time. Thanks, Ash, for joining in the conversation. And here's to another great Just a GP podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, Charlotte.